Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about continuous corn nutrient management. We have four members of Extension's nutrient management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser. I am a nutrient management specialist um, focusing on corn and other fertilizer guidelines for agronomic crops in the state of Minnesota. I'm located out of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. I am Fabian Fernandez, also a nutrient management specialist in the St. Paul campus, focused specifically on nitrogen management for corn cropping systems, uh, looking at uh, agronomic performance of corn uh, and also environmental uh, quality aspects of nitrogen management. Hi, I'm Jeff Coulter. I'm an extension corn agronomist. Hi, this is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher uh, at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca, and I focus my research on nitrogen management in corn, but also just general nutrient management in all crops. All right, starting off, what are the most challenging aspects of continuous corn production? Well, I'd say there's a lot of them. One of the big ones is managing corn rootworm, but that's better suited to a discussion with the entomologist. Um, from the nutrient management and soil management standpoint, you know, big ones are residue management and slow early season growth. And those things can lead to a yield drag later in the year. So with that yield drag, Jeff, I mean, it's just kind of a, a question for you. I mean, do you notice differences across sites? I mean, this could be for either Jeff. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen, you know, Jeff Vetch more specifically is at Waseca. We tend to see a pretty big one, but I think a lot of that's related to nitrogen in the central part and some of those heavier soils. But it seems like in the southeastern part of the state, I can tend to get on some of those silt loams a little bit higher yield potential. I don't know if either of you have a comment on you know, in general, what you see differences for that yield drag if it's consistent across locations. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you, Dan. I think those well-drained soils in southeast Minnesota maybe have a little bit less of a yield penalty. Unfortunately, they may have other pest issues, but uh, I think the nutrient management um, methods that we use or that we'll talk about here in a moment are effective ways to manage this in, in the poorly drained soils. I agree uh, with what's been said. It seems like on those uh, fine textured, poorly drained soils, the yield drag is greater than on a lot of the other soils in the state. Um, you know, one of the best things to do is to use a crop rotation if possible. Uh, but if that's not possible, then, you know, one needs to think about alternative ways to, uh, to manage that, that corn. And in continuous corn, what we know is that just due to the high amount of residue, that keeps the soil colder for a longer period of time in the spring. It can also tie up some nitrogen and it can release some compounds that inhibit the growth of the following corn crop. So things not only related to nutrient management, but also related to hybrid selection become very important. So trying to select hybrids that are suitable for corn on corn and that have good ratings for emergence and early season vigor. And Jeff, your comments on the uh, the cool soil temperatures, that's really kind of interesting because I remember um, at Lamberton, one of our field schools, we were looking at some of this and um, we were doing just some measurements and this was in, you know, normally we do those at the end, those are the end of July. Uh, so it's rather warm out at the point in time we're there. I just remember um, taking some measurements under residue at that point in time and seeing, you know, at least a five or more degree difference and under the residue versus, you know, in, in a bare soil situation. So that's, uh, you know, one of the things that I think most growers, and I kind of remember a point in time where trash whips came in, 
you know, I think it kind of can be really important just to try to clear the row, to get a clean row for seed bed, but also to get some of the uh, residue off there to get a warmer seed bed in there. So that's uh, one of the things I know really that's noticeable. If you have a heavy residue situation, find a bare spot and under that, just interesting it, just to see what that difference in temperature can be because it can be pretty substantial based on what I've seen. Yeah, the other thing that um, comes to mind when you're talking about residue is uh, for those that uh, are interested in cover crops and establishing cover crops, um, we have some studies where we have continuous corn and the amount of residue buildup is pretty high. And it's, it's difficult to get a, a good establishment of a cover crop simply because a lot of the seeds, if you're not drilling those seeds in, they just uh, germinate on top of the residue and they don't really make it into, their, into the soil. So they end up dying and your stand looks pretty thin. Which key nutrients are impacted by residue breakdown and how can we manage residue to limit nutrient tie up? Well, the, you know, the major one's nitrogen, and that's the one uh, we see. And if you look at the, the recommendations for nitrogen for corn, for continuous corn are higher than corn following soybean. And a lot of that is a result of the difference in the two crops in terms of how nitrogen is cycled. And I know there's some debate out there. I think there was some work out of Iowa State that um, talked about what we perceive as the soybean nitrogen credit being no more than just essentially the difference between what our normal mineralization potential in a soil is versus the amount of nitrogen that's tied up in a situation where we have a high residue like uh, corn production. So, I mean, that's that's really the main one. Um, sulfur too, we've seen this um, in uh, particularly in continuous corn. A lot of our research shows that sulfur is very important um, because we do know that nitrogen and sulfur are organic uh, molecules uh, that will be incorporated into microbes as they break down residue. And there is a critical level of carbon to sulfur as well as carbon to nitrogen when it comes to breakdown. And um, as far as anything else, there's phosphorus, but the phosphorus content of your residues are gonna be relatively low. So I, I don't really see much of a phosphorus penalty. Um, with that, and potassium is one that, um, you know, when you look at a, a average corn crop, you're looking at anywhere from a total of probably 200 to 250 pounds of potash or K2O taken up on a per acre basis. Uh, and a lot of that is in the residue, but uh, at least with uh, the K that's in the residue, it can be freely leached out. So it's not really involved in recycling when it comes to residue breakdown, but it can be affected um, if that K isn't released, we can impact could potentially impact the next year crop because that's K that's being recycled from one year to the next. That's one thing we haven't really looked at continuous corn, but um, it can be there. And now that's one of the things, there is some data, really good data out there showing up potassium release from residue. But, you know, really the main thing, I think most growers, what they're going to be challenged with is nitrogen and, and sulfur is, is kind of the one, two, I'd, I'd put that in, in terms of, of the nutrients that are going to be more affected by residue cycling. You know, Dan, that, uh, your comment reminded me also of, um, study I did a number of years ago looking at um, uh, it was actually focused on on soil sampling for P and K um, but uh, the uh, the release of potassium from the residue was actually very interesting because we were looking at um, um, reduced tillage systems no till and strip till and in the case of a strip till especially we were using RTK so we were planting always in the same position and um, in the soil, we started to see this uh, pattern of high and lows across the field. 
and we were broadcasting fertilizer in those fields and yet we were seeing these spikes of high potassium uh, and it was right on the row position and so um, the fact that potassium leaches out of the plant material rapidly after the plants reach physiological maturity can result in this pattern of high and lows across the field and uh, it creates a challenge if you are not moving those uh, crop rows uh, from year to year in terms of how you take a soil sample to represent that fertility. Well, it's kind of a side note, Fabian. I remember when I was at Iowa State, we we're doing research and going out to a plot, and there's the guy who was baling round bales and seeing round bales sitting in the middle of my research trial, and it was a potassium trial, so it was kind of one of the things I was uh, a little bit curious to see underneath that bale after it sat there for a while, how that would affect my K test and my K trial, but... Um, yeah, it's one of those things that we don't really think about that recycling from potassium, but it is leached out. And the be as best I've seen, we get about a 60% recovery by the next year, depending on the amount of rainfall we get. So we can get um, roughly half of it or just slightly more than half out of that. But um, then it just takes a little bit longer period for the break, the rest of that down. So it's, it's one of the things we don't think about. I mean, really, though, when it comes to our recommendations, I mean, nitrogen's the big one, and that's why we had said we adjust up for corn-corn versus corn-soybean just to account for some of that nitrogen that's being potentially tied up that's not available for that crop for that first year of application. And then with Jeff, um, I know both of you have looked at re residue removal. What have you, what's your kind of general consensus then in terms of um, that overall nitrogen penalty? Um, whether Can you get rid of that if you remove the residue, or do we still have to apply slightly more nitrogen um, with the, in a situation where we can remove part of the residue off the field? Well, my experience has been that uh, when we remove some of the residue, either all of it or some of it, uh, that the optimum nitrogen rate goes down a little bit and the yield goes up. So the whole cropping system starts to migrate more towards the corn-soybean rotation than corn-corn. However, one needs to be really cautious when they're thinking about how much residue is taken off of a field. There's been some work out in Nebraska that looked at what is the sustainable amount of corn residue that could be harvested in continuous corn and be sustainable. And what they found is in a discrete tillage system with the yield levels that we're achieving today, that no more than 45% of that corn stover should be harvested. Otherwise, um, one can see a significant decline in uh, soil organic matter and also a significant increase in soil erosion. So, you know, if, if one has a field where corn residue is being harvested, you definitely want to, you know, be mindful of that and, uh, and take that into account. Well, one of the big things I see too is, I mean, what market is there out there right now for residue? I think that's the main challenge is other than beef producers, um, you know, at one point cellulosic ethanol was the, the rage and everybody was going to be harvesting stover as well as grain and making ethanol, but that's kind of been by the wayside. So, I mean, in terms of options then, I mean, it's, it's either plow it under to get it under the surface or it's just figure out the best way to deal with it um, because I just don't see that there's enough of a market right now that with the acreage that's out there that we can um, be looking at removing all the residue and I kind of your general opinions on that? I mean, it's kind of the way I guess I see it. Yeah, in some parts of uh, Minnesota, like in Western Minnesota, where there's a lot of livestock, um, yeah, it's like a secondary crop almost in some areas. But, you know, if, you know, one doesn't have a, a source for it, it's not really something that's 
you know, feasible to think about as a management option. What has recent research told us about how to maximize yield in a continuous corn system? You know, I think that going going back to uh, to what uh, the the previous question we talked about, you know, what are key nutrients and and how does residue interact with them? I think what we can think about is using management systems that we manage the nutrients instead of trying to manage the residue. And I and I agree with Jeff that there are options to 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 remove residue and maybe make a, a crop out of it. But if you can't do that. We've done a fair amount of research looking at placing nitrogen and sulfur in a band, either dribbled on the surface or two by two near the row, as a great way to overcome these negative effects of the residue in corn-on-corn -corn systems that have a fair amount of surface residue. So it's a way we can manage the nutrients to, to get away from this immobilization and these concerns, get that early vigor, early growth, and in the studies that we did at Waseca and at Rochester, about a third of the time we saw a yield advantage to that. It wasn't every year, you know, that as Dan will agree that not every year does that early vigor result in extra yield, but some years it really is critical. Um, I think that's a big thing that you can do. Uh, and then as Dan mentioned, uh, sulfur is very important in continuous corn. Well, some of the things that we've been looking at, I mean, Sulfur is kind of a big one, um, and you know, kind of as what Jeff was saying, that's when one of the things we've been looking at is how to best deliver sulfur, and that uh, two by zero band system isn't a bad option for growers. Um, we've seen actually instances where you know we see growers looking at potentially split planter systems where you look at an inferro band of 10340, uh, a small amount to get the crop out of the ground, then look at coming in then with, um, or having an additional band of uh, ammonium thiosulfate over the top to the side of the row. And there's some good options with that, but in some of the data that Jeff's seen, you know, kind of some of my recommendations based on what I've seen have been that that um, sulfur and that nitrogen application are, are more critical than anything else. So that's really kind of the thing I think growers have to kind of consider is, um, you know, particularly if you're dealing already with a situation of high soil test P, there's really no reason why, I mean, the majority of that inferral phosphorus is mostly cosmetic. And then anything else with it um, then is, you know, you look at the yield responses we see more consistently to the sulfur. And um, that's been one of the big things I've seen with a lot of our trials in continuous corn um, has been with sulfur, no matter how you put it on. Uh, one of the things we've seen is more consistency to the stand uh, where you'd normally get a lot of unevenness in, in emergence. And um, we see that everything is greener and more, it's larger and more consistent across the field and with, with um, much of that research. So I think that's been the big thing. Um, has been looking at, um, you know, some of that early night, the early nitrogen sulfur availability is I think critical. And we've looked at some other interactions. I know Jeff mentioned rootworm. Um, I did some work when I first started, we were looking at some two by two banded options with nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium that data was pretty inconclusive in terms of we were looking at with and without rootworm protection. It, you know, it didn't really give us any greater or, or lesser of a benefit um, with or without that rootworm protection on it. So, so there's, you know, a lot of talk out there. Um, the one I hear more often than not is potassium uh, with, with stock strength. Um, a lot of growers will talk about that um, in terms of, you know, does that benefit? I mean, I don't know. Um, I, we've looked at it. I don't know, Fabian, Jeff, Coulter, either of you have any comments related to that um, in terms of nutrients and 
you know, standability, because that's one of the things I know growers do, do talk about at, at some point, and just potentially in disease resistance. I have uh, seen the effects of potassium, especially on, on, on the stock diameter, but uh, this tends to be more of a situation where the plants are deficient, where you noticeably uh, see, the, you know, smaller diameters, uh, shorter inner node spacing. But if you have adequate potassium levels, adding additional potassium, I, I don't know if it really would make much of a difference, you know, in, in making the stock stronger or something like that. Um, I don't know if Jeff, if you have a, a thought on that, but uh, that's, that's kind of my, my experience is more related to those situations where you are borderline limiting or, or limited in the amount of potassium. Yeah, I think uh, making sure that potassium nutrition is sufficient in the field is really important for continuous corn, more so than corn following soybean. Um, there's more stalk rots and there's much more stalk lodging in continuous corn that results from that. And uh, potassium is one of the nutrients that helps to, uh, you know, ensure, you know, good stalk strength and also provides some stress tolerance. Um, and that, and some of the continuous corn research that we've done at Wasika and in central Minnesota on the sands, we found that, you know, pushing the plant population higher in order to achieve higher yields in continuous corn comes with a little more risk than maybe than corn following soybean. Uh, that crop has a greater risk of stock lodging. So one would want to make sure that, you know, the potassium nutrition is adequate for the crop. And then from, from a nitrogen standpoint, uh, I would say the major challenge with nitrogen in continuous corn is for um, surface applications like broadcast applications that are not incorporated if we are using uh, urea-based fertilizer because uh, the more residue you have, the more urease enzyme that you will have. And uh, urease is the, the one that creates uh, volatilization issues. And so if you have a lot of residue and you're using a urea-based fertilizer, you need to make sure that you incorporate that at least, I would say three inches at minimum to minimize the potential for, for volatilization. Um, you know, and then as we were talking earlier in terms of uh, mineralization with a corn soybean system, We've, uh, we've seen the effect of uh, mineralization under the two kinds of residues. When you have soybean residue in the field for that corn crop, uh, the, the mineralization process starts early in the growing season and it's, it continues through the whole growing season and it's a positive, a net positive. Uh, in other words, uh, the soil is providing nitrogen for the crop. When we look at uh, residue uh, fields with corn residue, we really saw no positive uh, net mineralization until about July. So from the uh, first part of the growing season until about the first part of July, we had net negative mineralization. In other words, the soil was capturing any nitrogen that was available or quite a bit of the nitrogen that was being produced through mineralization. It was being taken up by the soil microbes to, to decompose the residue. Uh, of course, the challenge with this is um, 
the dynamics of each growing season and it's pretty hard to predict how things are going to work out if we have adequate conditions for uh, ideal conditions for mineralization for instance that process may go faster but if we have dry conditions for a while maybe the nitrogen that we would expect be mineralizing time for the corn crop to use it may be delayed until later in the season when uh, when things uh, come back to more of a warm temperature and good moisture. I mean, the, the temperatures is typically not the limiting factor during the growing season tends to be the moisture. So if we are dry, that's where we start to see less mineralization. And if you have a system already that it's stressed for nitrogen because there is quite a bit of immobilization or, or nitrogen being taken up by soil microbes, then the crop can suffer um, because it doesn't have all the nitrogen that it needs. Are there any other practices not specifically related to fertilizer management that may interact with the soil fertility program that growers should be aware of for continuous corn production? Well, um, you know, Jeff mentioned the uh, some issues with toxicity. I will let him talk about that. Uh, but uh, one thing that uh, it is related to nutrients, but uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned that I think is very important, and it's something that this question keeps coming up, is um, in dealing with corn residue using uh, uh, an application in the fall, UAN or or some solution with nitrogen to uh, spray basically nitrogen on the corn residue to help accelerate the decomposition process. And um, this is actually some stuff that I looked at when I was uh, working in Illinois. That, that was a very prevalent que question for a while. And there was, uh, at that time, there was a study done in Wisconsin and farmers in Illinois were saying, well, the results from that study probably are not applicable to us because uh, Larry Bondi in Wisconsin found that um, applying nitrogen in the fall, you know, 20, 30 pounds of nitrogen to help uh, the decomposition process didn't really help. And so, um, in Illinois being farther south, uh, I decided that it was important to, to test that and really figure out if, it, if, if there was a benefit to that. We did the study for two or three years, I don't remember now exactly, but uh, we found no, no effect. And so the, the limiting factor for decomposition of corn residue in the fall has nothing to do with nitrogen, it has to do with moisture and with the temperature. Uh, typically we get cold too quickly so there is not enough time for the microbes to decompose that residue in the study when we you know we were looking methodically at um, uh, residue decomposition and uh, measuring the the breakage of uh, corn stocks you have kind of um, a numerical value of of the effect of uh, nitrogen applications we use UAN and also a solution of ammonium sulfate in that study and we saw no difference whatsoever until about June, July, where things were starting to break down because there was enough temperature and moisture at that point for, for the break, breakdown to occur. So it's a bad practice. You apply that nitrogen in the fall for, for residue decomposition. Um, simply, it just doesn't do it. And of course, uh, nitrogen as UAN, it's, it's a really bad idea because it's not going to stick around for the next year. So it's not like you will have a, a credit on that nitrogen the following year. There are some anecdotal 
things that people apply in, in nitrogen in the fall and they see that the um, the stalks and, and the and the leaves look a little bit darker brown or something but but again when you measure it and, and really take uh, measurements to to quantify the effect we absolutely no no benefit bueno jeff um both of you had a this global maze project that you had for a number of years at a couple locations and you were looking at cultural practices versus fertility practices uh what kind of was your take in terms of you know boosting yield was it more of a you know, looking at more advanced fertility practices could get a bigger yield gain, or was it uh, changes in some of these these cultural practices like residue removal, hybrid selection, those type of things that were kind of bigger in terms of yield gains at those sites? Well, we found that there was an effect of both. So we looked at advanced agronomic practices where we removed a portion, a portion of the corn stover in the fall before tillage, and then we also used a longer season hybrid and a greater planting rate. And by doing that, that did increase yield in most cases. And um, it also resulted in better nitrogen use efficiency. Um, we also did have a situation, or when we, when we used advanced fertilizer management, we kind of got a similar response as well. And when we combined the two, uh, we often got a, got a boost as well. So a combination of both, uh, more advanced agronomics and more advanced fertilizer management help to increase yield. Now, you know, at $5.37 a bushel for corn or, or whatever, that's definitely um, helps to cover those expenses. But, you know, at a, at a more common corn price, you know, $4 or $4.50 a bushel, um, you know, then doing all of that stuff, you know, really, doesn't always pay and you know either either going with advanced agronomics or advanced fertilizer management um, seem to be just as good so i think there's a lot of things to take into account um, i don't think there's necessarily one practice that is you know the answer for everything but i think it's kind of about you know each individual a uh, decision that's part of your operation and trying to fine tune that and and get closer to um, you know a system that's operating better overall and has has greater yield and profitability. Uh, one thing we did notice in those studies, uh, we in our advanced fertilizer management, we were applying P and K at uh, rates that were greater than than uh, the university guidelines. And we really didn't see uh, an advantage to that. What we did see is uh, when we were doing that, the soil test levels built up very quickly. So, and that also greatly added to the expense of the treatments. Yeah, and Jeff, I like your comment when you said it's not one practice, because I, you know, I just remember growing up, my dad coming back from some of these seminars he went to, and he'd always bring back, you know, one idea that, that had been talked about out of maybe a, a several that we could try to increase yield. And it just may not be as simple as changing one thing when it comes to that. It's a system and I mean, it needs to be kind of more of a holistic approach in terms of everything that's going on. So that's, you know, Jeff, I think that's a really good comment on that in terms of that, um, you know, when you're looking at these things that it may be an interaction of factors you might be able to look at if you're looking at really trying to get at what's giving you a, a substantial increase in yield. 
And I think, you know, looking at the, um, the situation, the field conditions that you are in are very important as well. We haven't really talked about drainage conditions in the field, but uh, if you have uh, a poor, poorly drained soil that doesn't have enough uh, tile drainage or, or natural drainage, that can also impact uh, performance of con in continuous corn, especially because all these things we were talking about in terms of residue decomposition and also disease uh, issues with too much moisture are uh, a pretty substantial problem, more so than if you have adequate drainage. Another thing that I was also thinking, again, related back to, to nitrogen is, uh, a lot of people are looking at split nitrogen applications and how much nitrogen to apply at pre-plant in order to, to then come back and do a side race application. We did a study uh, a few years ago looking at uh, different nitrogen rates pre, at pre-plant uh, with a split application system. This was unfortunately was not in continuous corn, it was in corn after soybean. We were looking at applying either 40 or 80 pounds pre-plant and then coming back and side dressing the rest of the nitrogen around B8, B9. And we found that there was really no difference whatsoever on whether you apply 40 or 80. We have not done the, the, re, the research in continuous corn, but uh, my suspicion, my very strong suspicion is that 40 pounds may not be completely adequate, that we may need actually a little bit more nitrogen than 40 pounds um, to hold the crop until side race, especially if the side race application is later. You know, if you're doing an application at V4, V6, you may, may be okay with 40 pounds, but if you are, um, waiting a little bit longer for that side race application, or you are concerned that you may not get in the field in a timely manner, going with a slightly higher rate uh, of that pre-plant application would be important. All right, any last words from the group? One thing I wanna bring up is um, uh, we do know there are some instances out there where we've seen higher than expected nitrogen response. If anybody is interested in that, I would just suggest going back to our January podcast uh, because we talked a little bit more about that in, de in depth and detail. So I don't think it really bears covering here, but um, I think we did a, a pretty long, lengthy discussion of that. And that's kind of the key thing I think is um, we do know there's probably more variation out there in optimum end rates with continuous corn than we do see with continuous soybean. And a lot of that's really tied to a lot of these things that we've been talking about. Um, and so we we're struggling to deal with that with the recommendations now. And they said a good, good reference to that. We just go back and tune into our January uh, 2021 podcast. All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.